Hello and welcome to the Grattan podcast. At the start of July, we farewelled our CEO of 11 years, John Daly. John was instrumental in setting up Grattan and developing our rigorous research programs from the early days until now. His enormous enthusiasm and curiosity has greatly contributed to Australian public policy and helped change this country for the better. He hands over the reins to Danielle Wood, who you may have previously heard on this podcast as Grattan's Budget Policy and Institutional Reform Program Director. She is a highly experienced economist, as well as being the National President of the Economic Society of Australia and the co-founder of the Women in Economics Network. This week, we present the first part of a special two-part series, looking at where Grattan has come from and where Grattan will go. This week, Danielle Wood interviews John Daly on his achievements and the origins of the Grattan Institute. Next week, John will interview Danielle on the future of Grattan and policy in Australia. We hope you enjoyed this special series. John, let's go back in time. 11 years ago, you were the Managing Director of E-Trade at the ANZ. Grattan Institute was just a twinkle in the eye of some political leaders and public servants. What made you decide to throw your hat into the ring to, to lead this new institution? Well, to be fair, it was a little bit more than a twinkle in the eye. They had promises of money from the Commonwealth, promises of money from uh, the Victorian government, promises of money uh, from BHP. Uh, but it sounded like something that was going to be a bit academic, a bit public sector and a bit private sector. And that was a bit like my history, a bit of all three. It's not many jobs where you can indulge all three of those interests at once uh, and, of course, make a difference to the country. And so I thought it would be worth a try. So starting with a blank sheet of paper, obviously there would have been a lot of important decisions to be made. Who were the people or, or what were the ideas that really influenced the way that you decided to build Grattan? So again, to be fair, it was a little bit more than a blank sheet of paper. Um, there was a there was a business plan from McKinsey, uh, but having worked for McKinsey for three years, I knew exactly how much I should rely on a business plan from McKinsey. Um, <laughs> so inevitably, you sort of bring a lot of your own ideas uh, and influences with you. Um, a couple of things that that I guess came. Uh, for me, um, in my past, I'd worked uh, as a research assistant to uh, Professor Cheryl Saunders, um, a professor in constitutional law at the University of Melbourne. Uh, and she had this um, way of approaching constitutional law that it was partly about what the written constitution said. It was partly about the political practice. It was partly about political reality. Um and you had to, in order to understand what was going on, you had to see all three of those. But you also had to understand that what was written down and those institutions and the way that they worked really mattered and often shaped uh, what happens in our political and policy life. So I definitely brought that with me and an ambition that, that Grattan would be one of those institutions, but also it would have to interact with all the other institutions. I guess the second big influence was Professor David Pennington. He'd been the Vice-Chancellor at the University of Melbourne. I'd worked for him as his research assistant on, on education policy. Um, but the thing that I really took away from working with David is that David was obviously very engaged in, in public policy debate, not only on education, but he'd been a leading player on, on the um, creation of Medicare. He'd been uh, very heavily involved in the AIDS debates. 
In fact, he wrote a book, uh, an autobiography called Making Waves, about all of the policy debates that he'd been involved in over the years. And the thing that David understood was that part of public policy was about going and arguing a case as a lobbyist and, you know, talking to the politicians and the public servants and all the rest of it. But part of it was about engaging in the public argument and trying to bring the public with you. Uh, David never just saw the media as a, as a shield. He always saw it as a sword as well, something that you could use to try and get public opinion to change if you had a good enough argument. Um, and that when you brought the hearts and minds of the people, uh, usually the hearts and minds of our politicians came shortly thereafter. And so I always saw Grattan as something that should, as well as talking to policymakers um, and politicians, uh, should also talk in public. And whatever we were saying behind closed doors should be roughly speaking what we were saying out in public, hoping to bring the public with us, uh, knowing that that's an important part of getting policy change. Um, then I'd spent some time, um, as I said, at McKinsey. Um, I guess I took away a number of things from that. Um, firstly, that prioritisation really matters. Um, it's very easy simply to do the things that are relatively easy to do, but that don't matter. Uh, and instead, you should spend much more time on the things that are often hard to do, but that really do matter. And if that means other things don't get done, just don't worry about it. Just focus on the small number of things that are really going to make a difference. And then the other thing I took away from McKinsey is that communicating those ideas is actually much, much harder than it looks. Uh, that you can do literally weeks of, or months of study, and you should spend about the same amount of time trying to figure out how am I going to communicate all of the analysis I've just done? Uh, because you can have the most magnificent analysis in the world, but if you don't communicate that to a decision maker, to a public, it, you might as well not have done the analysis. Uh, and so that's why Grattan's always had this really significant focus on communication. Um, the idea of having an, a Grattan editor, so in practice that's been first James Button and then Paul Austin, was uh, frankly stolen from McKinsey where they had quite a large number of what they called communications consultants, people whose job it was to work with the teams who were doing all the analysis, uh, but these communications consultants would do nothing but push you really hard on exactly what are you trying to say and how might you say it better. And then finally, an experience that I brought um, from the ANZ, I, I worked for quite a long time with Jeff Cohen uh, and he taught me to be patient. Uh, that no matter how good your ideas and no matter how good your analysis, sometimes what you had to do was just be patient, keep um, working away. Uh, and if at first you don't succeed, just keep working for longer and often then you do succeed. Well, that's a, a lot of wisdom that you had to draw on there. And I think, you know, all of those ideas are sort of equally pertinent today. Um, what about values? What were, were there any sort of underlying values that you wanted to bring to the work that Grattan did? Yeah, look, I think a, num a number. Um, firstly, um, that Grattan should be public. The bottom line is the public had paid for it and therefore we shouldn't be doing analysis or saying things behind closed doors that we didn't effectively also make available to the public. Um, uh, and as I said, that also fitted into a view that if you're trying to get policy change, then changing public opinion is at least part of what you're trying to do. And I guess the other values are the ones that that we have talked about publicly and sort of put into Grattan's strap lines. It should be independent. You should call it like you see it without fear or favour. 
Um, people talk about frank and fearless advice. I think there's a lot of people suggesting that there is less frank and fearless advice than there used to be. Um, but I would like to think that that is very much the way that Grattan has approached things, that we call it like we see it. If the consequences of that are that a donor's not going to like us or a minister's not going to like us or a shadow minister's not going to like us, that's unfortunate, but that's no reason not to call it like we see it. Um, secondly, as a rigor, um, when you approach a problem, you know, go and get the, don't go and do the analysis, go and get the numbers. And, and when you've done that analysis, the numbers is the numbers is the numbers. Um, if the analysis tells you something that you didn't expect, well, apart from anything else, that's probably interesting. Because um, if with some idea about the area, you guessed something and the numbers seem to suggest that that guess is wrong, chances are other people would have made the wrong guess as well. Um, but also it's the intellectual integrity to say, look, I, I, you know, I knew, I, I know I was trying to get this result, but you know, that's just not what the evidence says. So I will change my story to fit the evidence, not the other way around. Uh, and so I think really bringing that rigor and attached to that is that intellectual integrity. And, and I think that that intellectual integrity goes in a lot of ways. Uh, it's about admitting that other people probably know more than you do. But it's also saying, well, they might be wrong, so I'm going to check. I'm not going to assume that they're right. But I'm also going to admit that I might be wrong. Um, and if I am wrong, well, I'm just going to change my view because, you know, the numbers are the numbers are the numbers. And what about the design of the institution itself? I mean, what, what were some of the key choices that you felt you needed to make about how the organisation would operate? So I think one of the biggest choices that you've got to make in running a think tank is, are you going to do consulting work or not? Uh, and I think that's a topic on which it's very hard to be half pregnant. The minute you do the first piece of consult paid consulting work where someone basically says, you know, I'm going to pay you to do the following thing and I've got an interest in the answer. Uh, the first time you do that, people are going to say, okay, you're for sale. Um, and, and they will discount whatever you say from then on. Now, the flip side, of course, is that's a very important revenue stream potentially, and that's why no doubt a lot of think tanks and and, and uh, similar bodies do do that kind of consulting work. It, it frankly pays the bills. Because Grattan had this very substantial capital fund from uh, the Victorian Commonwealth governments, BHP and NAB, we could afford not to do that. We could afford to say, we will simply use our money to, to, to look at whatever we think is important. Um, we will appeal for donations, but at the end of the day, we're not going to be paid to do specific pieces of work that someone's got an interest in. Um, as I said, that means that more people from the media and the public trust you. Um, and it also means, and I think this is a really big thing, you're much less likely to self-censor. If you know that you are going to... Um, you know, a government department next week and tendering for a piece of work that, that they've got on offer to you know evaluate something or other, you are very likely to publish something this week that is going to piss off the department or its minister because you're at least going to be worried, even if it's not true, you're going to be worried that as a result you won't get that revenue stream. And so I think one of the problems with doing that sort of consulting work is that you um, – you wind up self-censoring based on the fact that you're chasing after the next piece of money. Um, so that was, I think, a really fundamental design choice in Grattan um, and one that we've stuck to. And, and I've seen that play out. I've seen, um, you know, we said some things at one stage about um, 
uh, what we should do on gas. And we immediately got attacked in public as to, well, you know, you got money from BHP when you were founded. Um, uh, you know, uh, you would say that, wouldn't you? And we could immediately come back and say, well, BHP gave us that money literally, you know, as we were starting. We're not getting any ongoing money. Uh, and here's a long list of things where we've said things that BHP didn't like very much. And I suspect one of the reasons we were prepared to say them was that at no stage did we ever worry about whether BHP was going to be offended by what we said because we weren't asking them for um, any more money. Um, uh, so that was one key design choice. Another key design choice was to talk to all sides of politics. So many of the, the think tanks in Australia um, you know, are, are much closer to one side of politics than another. That, without doubt, gives them much more access than Grattan has to, a, to that side of politics. On the other hand, it means they've got much less access to other sides of politics. And it also means that they've got much less access to the public service because the public service has um, a need to be seen as apolitical. It can't be seen um, to be too close to either side of politics. And therefore, Grattan, um, we very carefully positioned to talk to all sides of politics um, to say that, um, you know, we didn't belong to anyone. And also that, roughly speaking, what we said to any one side of politics behind closed doors was going to be more or less what we said to anybody else. Um, a third one, a big choice, and, and this was quite a debate early on, should, should Grattan essentially do the analysis and lay out the options or should we make recommendations? Uh, and I was very keen to see that Grattan made recommendations. Um, the reality is we deal with difficult, complicated topics. Many people in public, uh, members of the public, don't have the time to work through the options. Actually, what they're hoping we will do is work through the options and say, this is what you should do and this is why. And we might be wrong about that, but at least we've given them an anchor to hang on to. Um, so I was really keen that we um, make our best judgment about what was the right thing to do in any situation and lay that out. And then there were big choices that we made about size. So um, I think tank can both be um, too small and it can be too big too small and it doesn't cover enough of the policy waterfront. Um, you miss important, you, well, you're working on one topic, but you miss important things uh, relevant to that topic because you're not covering other areas. And of course, COVID-19 has been a fantastic illustration of that. You cannot work sensibly on the economic aspects of COVID-19 unless you also understand the health impacts. If you're working on the education impacts of COVID-19, you need to understand both the economic and the health impacts, you know, all these things wind up being interrelated. And I think it's really helped Grattan that we've had this broad spread. On the other hand, I think it's very easy for a think tank to get too big. Um, one of the things I did early on was, was go and visit a lot of the think tanks um, in America um, on a sort of whistle top stop tour. And one of the things I noticed was there were, there were a couple that were sort of 200, in some cases, 2,000 people. There were a lot that were about 30, maybe 40 people, there were almost none that were between that size of about 35 people uh, and 200. And, mm. and as I kind of observed this and looked at it, one of the, I realised that was because um, a, a chief executive can read the work of about 30, 35 people if they are very diligent. <laughs> um, <laughs> and you always were, of course, John. <laughs> and, and as I know, you will be, Danny. Um, uh, but um, 
you you just physically can't read any more than that. And so as soon as the think tank grows beyond about 30 people, you need a whole extra layer and a whole series of processes to try and maintain both the quality of the work that's produced and also whether or not it's internally consistent. Um, and so um, even if the money had been available, which I don't really think it was, I wasn't keen for Grattan to be more than 30-odd people because we certainly didn't have enough money to be 200 people. Um, and, and so I didn't think that we would get a lot of extra um, productivity, um, even if the place grew materially above 30. Uh, and then finally, you know, I guess in terms of approaches, key design choices, look, a whole bunch of boring stuff. Um, you know, uh, have a really good HR system in terms of the way that you um, hire people, the way that you um, uh, uh, provide performance feedback to them, the way that you perform and it's managed um, all of that. Make sure your financials are tidy. Make sure your board papers are tidy. Um, if nothing else, because if you don't get all of that stuff right, um, and this was, I guess, an experience I had um, when ANZ took over E-Trade. Um, they sent me in as the first managing director. I think it'd be fair to say that there were a number of messes that had to be tidied up. I spent most of my life tidying up messes and relatively little of my life, you know, making the business do things better and uh, expanding into new things. And therefore, I was determined uh, that I was going to try and minimise the amount of mess that I created as I was setting it up so that I wouldn't have to spend the rest of my life cleaning up mess um, thereafter. Boring but important. <laughs> so that's absolutely fascinating from my perspective to kind of hear just the amount of thought that that went into all of those key decisions. Um, 11 years later, looking back, um, you know, what what do you see as Grattan's biggest achievements? So we've obviously contributed to a huge number of, of reports and, and issues. I think we're up to about 130-odd reports at the moment. Um, uh, those have translated into lots of front pages. Those who visited the Grattan offices will know that we've got um, lots of uh, newspapers on the wall, the rule being that you only get to go on the wall if you were the lead story in a national newspaper, and, and there's been quite a lot of those. So, you know, when you're a lead story, then by definition as a think tank, you just made news. You actually shifted the public conversation onto a topic that by definition was not the thing that everyone was talking about. Otherwise, you wouldn't have been the lead story in the newspaper. Um, so we've certainly shifted public opinion on a large number of topics. Um, and I think we've actually made progress on, on a very large number. Um, some of those, that progress is simply going from something that no one was talking about to something that lots of people are talking about to something that governments maybe commissioned a review about, even if it hasn't actually changed things. But on some topics, I think you can see that legislation or, or government policy has actually changed. So we've substantially wound back the generosity of superannuation tax changes. Uh, we've made big changes as a country to school funding. Um, so that it's more closely aligned with need. Um, we've maybe are not all over the way of the line on superannuation costs, but we've definitely made some progress. Um, we've uh, substantially reduced the amount that Australia pays for a number of um, pharmaceuticals. Now, on all of those, um, success has had many parents, and that's sort of in the nature of public policy. If you're actually going to make progress on these, you put your report out, hopefully other people get interested, hopefully other people start talking about it and also putting pressure on governments to do something about it. Government actually does something about it. 
And when you turn around and say, so who was responsible for superannuation taxes being wound back? The answer is ultimately lots of people. Success has lots of parents. Um, but on that one, we can say, well, Grattan was at least in the kitchen. And on some of these, you can kind of trace it back and say, well, Grattan was certainly in the kitchen very early. You can never prove that it would not have happened without Grattan. Um, that's not the nature of the enterprise that we're involved in. But at least some of the time, I think we can say, we certainly pushed it along a lot. Um, there's certainly a number that we've been blamed for. Uh, so Judith Sloan has publicly blamed us as being the kind of major <laughs> driver between um, uh, behind uh, uh, reducing the superannuation tax concessions. As I said, I'm not entirely sure that we were solely to blame, but you know, I think it's like many things in life, you, you take credit when you don't deserve it. And that makes up for the times when you should have got credit, but you didn't. I think if, at the very least, if you're taking the blame, you should take some of the credit. <laughs> <laughs> and what are the bits that you, you know, we've had a lot of fun along the way, but what were the bits that you really enjoyed? Oh, look, um, any number of things. Uh, one of the things that's on the wall that's not a newspaper front page is um, uh, the Australian Financial Review carried an opinion piece from myself um, and an opposing opinion piece from the Prime Minister, Malcolm Turnbull at the time, talking about negative gearing. That doesn't happen to you every day of your life. Um, I had a very good time on Q&A um, talking to um, Joe Hockey, as it turns out, also about negative gearing as well as a number of other issues. That was fun. Um, you don't get to trend on Twitter nationally all that often, um, unless you're a politician, which clearly I'm not. Um, and then, look, the thing that I guess has been the most fun is just any number of conversations over soup or making tea about um, about policy, about politics, about life in general. I think at Grattan, there's a real culture of simultaneously knowing that these things are really important to make a massive difference and also being able to see the absurdity of it. And, and anyone who's involved in government knows there's any quantity of absurdity. Uh, and so... Um, uh, I've enjoyed all of those. It's just been so much fun. You've done it all with a fantastic sense of humour along the way, which, as you say, is so important in this game. And so my, my favourite quote from um, the playwright Arthur Miller is, maybe all one can do is hope to end up with the right regrets. Do you... That's <laughs> <laughs> oh, a cracker, isn't it? Do you have any regrets very good. looking back over Grattan's work? Oh, look, I've got lots of regrets. Um uh, I wish we had consulted more. Um, you always wind up with not enough time to talk to enough people. It's a trade-off between writing reports and consulting with people. Um, I always wish I'd we, we'd consulted more and myself in particular. Um, there's any number of things where I think we've been a bit like Cassandra. We've been right but ineffective. So we figured out very early that governments had a budget problem. We figured out very early that they should have been consolidating those budgets a bit faster than they did, and they didn't, and now we're in COVID. We figured out really early, you know, in mid-March, that elimination was a much better strategy than suppression. We didn't convince enough people, and now Victoria's back in lockdown. Um, uh, any number of things like that where, you know, we were right, um, but we didn't get that. You always regret that. There's one where I think we were wrong. Um, uh, you know, quite early on, we wrote a, a paper about free carbon permits. Um, now, in a sense, we were right. Government was giving away way too many free carbon permits. But um, uh, the number of free carbon permits they were giving away, uh, however bad that was, was not a good reason to scupper 
um, the first carbon pricing deal. Um, uh, and of course, that carbon pricing deal, if, in fact, went down. Um, if it had held up, you know, maybe history would be really different. Um, so you never know, but but it's certainly a. I, I'm. I wonder whether we. I wonder whether we did the right thing, and yeah. Is that I, a I lesson know. about sort of first best policy versus political reality? Yeah, maybe. I mean, look, interestingly, uh, you know, some of the things we recommended on that in terms of the design of those permits, in terms of getting a, a um, review by the Productivity Commission of the basis on which they are being awarded, you know, ultimately did get written into government policy. Of course, then the entire CPRS got unwound by uh, the um, Liberal National Party um, when they got um, uh, re-elected, when they got elected. Um, so who knows? But but yes, it is. I guess it is a lesson that uh, just be very clear about what's um, what's the most important thing. And if you've got to live with second best, um, then that's a lot better than nothing at all. Um, and then you know, there's things I haven't done. Um, uh, you know, I'd, I'd love to have got around to writing the paper that I reckon I've delivered as a. a um, as a discussion about 25 times as academics have come to me and said, I want to set up within my university something that looks like Grattan. And I explain, well, you could do that, but here are all the things you'd have to do differently. And they go, well, I'm prepared to do two of those. So I say, no, 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 no. You have to do all of them. Uh, so I wish I'd got around to writing that up. And, <laughs> I wish and then, you had too, because that might save me another 25 meetings. <laughs> probably. Um, but, but a great piece of advice I got from um, someone who had been the Secretary of the Education Department in New Zealand um, about a year ago, uh, she said, John, remember, if you've done a halfway decent job of anything, uh, you are going to leave things undone when you finish up. And she said, don't worry about it. That's in the nature of life. So, yes, there are, I regret things I haven't done, but I'm, I'm learning that I should just live with that. So speaking of things that are undone, if if I could give you one wish, John, and that, that is a wish that one policy issue that Grattan has put on the table um, would get taken up by government, which one would you choose? So this may surprise you given how much time Grattan has spent on economic issues, but it probably reveals the fact that at heart um, my first love is constitutional law. Uh, and therefore you change the institutions and that's a much bigger lever than anything else. So I, if there was one policy on which we could make progress, I would limit the amount of money that political parties could spend in election campaigns, um, as you wrote about in your um, report on who's in the room. And the reason that I would put that one at the top of the list is that if we limited how much political parties could spend that would also significantly limit the amount that they tried to raise through donations because if they can't spend it, there's no more point in, in, in gaining it. Mm -hmm. If they were less dependent on donations, I think the political parties themselves would internally function quite differently. The membership would be more important and the party officials would be less important because it's those party officials that are responsible for a lot of the donations. Um, and also, I think that... Um, uh, the political decision-making would be different. Um, we would all love to believe that there is um, absolutely no link between who donates and what decisions get made. But the reality is, although I think that very few people in Australian politics are actually dishonest, 
The reality is that donations buy access and access influences decisions. And by definition, it does not always influence them in the public interest. By definition, it influences them uh, consistently with the private interests of whoever has been donating money. Uh, and so I think if I had to pick, pick a single lever that would actually have a big long-term effect, I think that's that would be it. I love to hear that one of my reports has made it, made it onto the top list, but I would absolutely agree. Getting the institutions right matters a huge amount. Um, 11 years in the, in the policy world, John, um, you know, what have you seen change in that time? So look, a number of things. Um, firstly, uh, it's become a much more quantitative game than it used to be. Um, so in fact, taking a much broader scope, 30 years ago, you know, when I was involved in policy, um, it was much more a sort of, here's the basic principle as a result of basic principles, you should do A, B, and C. These days, we don't have to guess about the basic principles. We can actually find out, well, is it actually true? Um, let's go get the data and find out. Uh, now, that's partly because there's more um, survey data available. It's partly because there's a lot more administrative data available. It's partly because that survey data you can now get at the unit record. So in effect, um, you can see that this individual, you don't know who they are, but you know this individual with the following characteristics answered all of the following, each of the questions in the following way. So you can kind of yourself as a researcher do the cross tabs. Now that's all become possible because computing power um, is even within 11 years has changed quite substantially. Things that um, 15 years ago you'd have needed a computer to do a supercomputer to do at a university these days you do them on a slightly souped-up laptop. Um, we can now map things in a way that even 11 years ago required very specialised skills. These days, you know, um, lots of people can do it on their laptop. Um, well, I think it's probably fair to say more more government departments making this type of data available as well to their to their credits. Absolutely. So the, the, there's more data there. Um, it's easier to capture it. It's easier to make it available, and it's easier to analyse it. So I think that's been one big change. A, a sort of converse change is that I think there's been a continued erosion of the value of expertise. Um, we have fewer and fewer semi-autonomous government institutions doing you know, independent work. Uh, 11 years ago, the Treasury had the Treasury Roundup. It routinely put out pieces that um, were not necessarily the views of the government of the day um, and that were kind of very interesting pieces of analysis. Today, it does um, much less of that. Now, there's a couple of exceptions. The Parliamentary Budget Office, of course, is new and it does do some of that kind of analysis. Uh, the infrastructure bodies are new and they do some of that kind of analysis. Um, ironically, one of the side effects of COVID-19 has been that um, uh, governments all of a sudden are much keener to say that they're doing things not because they think it's a terrific idea or because they know best, but because um, they've been advised to do such and such on expert advice. I actually think in a funny way that's really healthy. Um, governments are all of a sudden routinely, subliminally communicating a message, um, expert advice matters. Um, let's find out what is the right thing to do and do it. Um, and so I think that erosion of expertise, I'm, I'm hoping there might be a swing back as of the last six months. And maybe the final thing that's changed a lot, um, uh, again, when I started off in the public service um, uh, in the Victorian Department of Premier and Cabinet um, almost 30 years ago, it had just sort of started to shift from lawyers to economists, um, which, of course, you would think was terrific and I would think was terrible, Danny. Um, 
Uh, but it had become very clear that the princes were now economic economists and um, economic approaches were very much the dominant approach to any issue. You go back 40 or 50 years ago and it was much more about legal approaches and which legal approach is going to work the best. Um, that has changed over the last three, two or three years. I think the, the Trump, um, Brexit, uh, the rise of minor parties, falling trust in government um, has got everybody much more interested in the institutions than they were. We had a 30-year period in which everyone sort of more or less took the institutions for granted and worried a lot more about, well, let's do the analysis to figure out, you know, how do we set up this, that or the other market um, to work a bit better? Um, uh, how do we change the incentives so that all of this works a bit better? In the last couple of years, I think there's been a real swing back to saying, are the institutions working? Um, are they delivering to people? If they're not delivering to people, why not? Um, and, and you see that lawyers are back in and economists have got less control of the show. Uh, Treasury is less powerful than it used to be and the Department of Home Affairs is a lot more powerful than it used to be. Um, instead of assuming that a market is gonna be the right answer to a problem, we say, well, maybe we should just mandate the right answer. All of these things are consistent with this shift from economics back to law. I'm sure that that's a pendulum that will, in due course, switch back again. But it's it's certainly been something that's really, really noticeable over the last couple of years. And should we finish with a question about how you feel about the future, John? Are you, are you optimistic about policy development in Australia going forward? Well, I know it's very fashionable to be very pessimistic and that, you know, it's too hard to get anything done anymore and, and all the rest of it. But I am actually still a big believer in democracy. You can't fool all of the people all of the time. Uh, and if you work away at these issues for long enough, uh, then I think you can make progress. Sometimes we make progress a bit quicker than others, but, but I think overall we have tended to make progress. Um, but on the other hand, I think um, if you are going to be optimistic, you also have to be patient. Um, you know, failure, I suspect, in the public policy game is usually the consequence of somebody giving up as opposed um, to being beaten or because something is impossible. Uh, and so I am an optimist about the future. I think over the long run, government has got better, and that's one of the reasons why human welfare has got better, not least in Australia. But it will require people to continue to work hard at government and take it seriously, and it will require them to continue to be patient. I see plenty of people in Australian public policy who work hard and plenty are patient, uh, and I see a democracy that might be flawed, but it's still functioning reasonably well. Uh, so I think that's that's three pretty good reasons for optimism. And what's next for, for John Daly? <laughs> Well, for the next three months, I'm busy writing about um, firstly prioritisation and then about why it is that reform doesn't happen. And after that, I don't know. I'm open to very good offers. Um, if I have to spend a couple of months um, uh, at our gardening opportunity, planting more oak trees, then that doesn't seem like such a bad option. <laughs> well, there you go, everyone. Anyone looking for a fantastic policy brain, John is available. Um, look, thank you so much for your time, John. You know, thanks for building Grattan into to what it is today and being such a fantastic leader. And um, you know, certainly looking forward to hearing your thoughts on at the end of the gridlock project about you know how it is that we can get policy development moving in this country again. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. And Danny, thanks for your part in that journey. 
Grattan Institute is a non-profit organisation dedicated to providing independent, rigorous and practical solutions to Australia's most pressing problems. We rely on people like you to continue our research. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please donate at grattan.edu.au forward slash donate.